0: hello and welcome back to the air force judge advocate general school podcast we are joined today again uh, by captain matt ormsby Uh, captain ormsby's currently finishing up an assignment as the Area Defense Counsel at Misawa Air Base, Japan, and we're going to be talking to him about his recent uh, article that he submitted for the National Security Law Writing Competition that is hosted by the Air Force Judge Advocate General School and supported by the JAG School Foundation. This year, the topic was how national security law impacts America's Strategic Competition in the Gray Zone. Captain Ormsby is no stranger to this competition and has submitted with a fair amount of success several times over the last uh, several years. And he submitted this year a paper called Gray Dismay, a strategy to identify and counter gray zone threats in the South China Sea. Captain Ormsby, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So wanted to... Get um, dive in here to to your paper with you kind of just giving us the thirty second version of what you wrote. What is kind of the thesis? As is the case with many of these papers, uh, especially when you have a specific topic, the uh, the title doesn't give away a ton. So give us the elevator speech version of your uh, twenty odd page law review article. Um, before we get started?
1: Absolutely. So, in a nutshell, I argue that the U.S. Uh, has had a lot of success in conventional warfighting uh, in past years, and because of that, we've been deterring our adversaries from that high-end fight and kind of driving them toward what, what we call gray zone threats. Um, so threats that are um, not necessarily traditional military threats, And China is making advances in the gray zone on a regular basis in in the South China Sea. And so my argument is the best way to counter um, some of these gray zone initiatives from China is by strengthening international legal agreements, so treaties and response obligations with allies in the Indo-Pacific, focusing and starting primarily with the Philippines um, who has really the oldest uh, mutual defense treaty with the US.
0: Excellent. Yeah. So gray zone, this is kind of what we're all thinking about and talking about, writing about, and you defined it the way I think we all kind of understand it, that area between things that are clearly peaceful actions and clearly war. And generally, most people listening to this are gonna is going to know what we mean by gray zone without any more definition than that. But you kind of discussed some specific things um, in in one of your opening sections that I kind of wanted to pick your brain about. And the first one of those is how gray zone threats are now more than ever explicitly a focal point for our national security policy. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you treated it and discussed it in your article?
1: Gray zone threats received a lot of attention back in March 2021, uh, because in that month, the White House released its interim interim national security strategic guidance. Um, and as you probably recall, this was very early in President Biden's administration, about two months after he was sworn in. But even early in his presidency, I think the, the president called on the US to, quote, develop capabilities to better compete and deter gray zone actions. And that was probably the clearest mandate up until that point, coming from the White House. So you have this direct appeal uh, kind of shining a light on gray zone threats and emphasizing how the gray zone has become uh, a new area of focus for revisionist regimes, much like China and other adversaries.
0: Yeah, so that that specific part kind of struck me because when we talk about these proposals, um, and I'm you know, we in the field, I'm talking to lots of people about different ideas, identifying threats and coming up with ideas to how we can, you know, mitigate how we can deter uh, those kind of threats. It's not something we're making up. It's something we've, like you've just said, been mandated to try to address, we as a Department of Defense. So that, That kind of struck me as a little different than how the conversation has been playing out. But another specific part of gray zone competition that I wanted to talk to you about is you spend a little time discussing three major factors uh, that make something gray zone competition. So can you tell us what three that you talked about um, in that section of your paper?
1: And I hope it doesn't sound too simplistic, but I think of this, uh, at least from my frame of mind, as kind of the ABCs of gray zone warfare, because not only is it easy to remember, but these are, in my mind, the most important basic traits of the gray zone. So for me, gray zone competition is ambiguous and belligerent and coercive. And so by by using the word ambiguous, I mean that it is gray zone uh, threats are implied harm. Um, they do not fit cleanly within the traditional war models uh, uh, that the U.S. has studied. Uh, you know, in the late 20th century, they're not clearly military uh, or, or warring in nature. Um, so, for example, you you may see a state's coast guard uh, rather than traditional navy vessels uh, engaged in, in the gray zone. So they're ambiguous. They're belligerent. So they are aggressive in nature. Um, They have the ultimate goal of bringing about some sort of strategic advantage. Uh, It's a win-lose, right? It's a a zero-sum game in that sense. So the receiving state in in the gray zone is always worse off uh, after a threat in the gray zone. And finally, they're coercive. So these threats are meant to force uh, some sort of outcome uh, that the actor is using to, to put the the receiving state in a difficult decision to comply, um, and so whether it's political, whether it's economic or, or maritime, grey zone competition is very much calculated to bring about those desired outcomes.
0: Right, and I do. I think it sounds like, judging by your the rest of your ideas that we're going to get into, that we really focus a lot on the ambiguity part here. It sounds like your your proposals address that uh, heavily, uh, so that we end up with less a category with a you know smaller category of actions that are ambiguous, meaning we have, a, hopefully, a little clearer. Re- Menu of response options before us but we'll we'll get into that uh, in a little bit um, but talk a little bit about that um, I could dig in some on that ambiguity aspect and why that makes something gray zone and why it makes it kind of hard to respond to, and therefore kind of why that means it's uh, has been or can be effectively deployed by our competitors
1: yeah, I think that's that's really. The, the most important factor when we talk about the gray zone is, um, is that it's ambiguous and so much so that oftentimes uh, the receiving state doesn't even understand, doesn't even register that, that there's a, an attack per se or that there's something's at risk because it's so subtle um, that it, it, it's really falling below the radar. It's not a traditional attack or, or outright armed use of force. So very often you have states sort of scratching their heads and wondering where where does this fall in the matrix of responses? Are, are, are we allowed to engage with them? Should we uh, reciprocate in any way? Or should we just sort of let this be an act of aggression uh, without much more? So I think it really puts states in a, in a tough bind where they don't know exactly how to respond appropriately.
0: Yeah, I think uh, an example that came to mind was China's actions uh, with regard to these um, features in the South China Sea and kind Mm -hmm. of building those up where maybe one load of material that changes this feature from a little less submarine to a little more above the waterline, one load of material, that's, that's nothing, right? That's not a act of war but right. fast fast forward a few years and now there's a military base where before there was just a few uh rocks sticking out of the water
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah exactly now, yeah i mean a, a lot of what you see china doing is it's just those small acts whether it's um uh you know uh, grouping in-, in mass around an island or just chasing a boat um, things of that nature to kind of stake a claim to, to like you say, these, these what, what are, you know, small rocks and shoals and reefs in the South China Sea. Um, but, you know, year after year, if, if um, these Chinese acts of aggression are not checked, then the Chinese will be emboldened and they will do more aggressive acts in the future because we allow a precedent to be set.
0: Yeah, speaking of those um, actions in the South China Sea and being emboldened, talk about some of these other specific instances you mentioned uh, where China has acted out kind of more and more against, especially in you know, in our for our purposes today, the interests of the Philippines in that area. And w- what are some of the behaviors they are engaging in over there?
1: One of the The biggest uh, acts that they engaged in was in 2019. um, And that was this uh, massing of boats, uh, kind of a swarming around Fitu Island. um, And the Philippine government uh, condemned this act and and said that it was a violation of uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But Fitu Island is is the second largest of the chain of reefs uh, and shoals in the South China Sea, forming the Spratly Islands. And there's not a whole lot on the island um there's uh, some some buildings it's the island itself is just a few feet above um, above sea level during high tide uh, but it's inhabited by filipino citizens uh, and uh, they've been living there for a long time even as the island has become this object of interest for china um, so what you had is uh, in 2019 the philippine department of foreign affairs basically launched a protest. After the Philippine military uh, was tracking more than 200 Chinese vessels um, uh, around and near Fitu Island, and and those vessels have been sighted uh, hundreds of times uh, near the island uh, in just in 2019 alone, and so it's just a, this great example of uh, falling short of war, uh, clearly, uh, but such such actions being intimidating, being ambiguous, being belligerent. Um, uh, seeming to be hostile in nature um, and and trying to intimidate and challenge um, this kind of these Philippine maritime claims uh, to the waters around the island and, and possibly at a later time to the island itself.
0: So, what was the um, international response
1: to that? Yeah, the, the international response to that and, and even other incidents too um, has been pretty muted. Um, as you'd expect, the Philippine government has always been up in arms and has always been very vocal about it, um, but they have reached out to other allies, um, such as Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, for help um, with a little to no response, it, and to the U.S. too, because we are an ally as well of the Philippines um, we have agreements with them, uh, legal uh, agreements, so treaties that have gone back for decades as well uh, to come to their defense. So they've they've um, reached out to us as well. Um, right or wrong, though, uh, there's been little to no um, meaningful help, at least in the eyes of the Filipino, Philippine government, um, when it comes to these sort of acts of aggression from the Chinese. Gotcha. Yeah,
0: and that, can at least arguably be tied back to the language of this treaty that exists. So, um, bring us in now from kind of where we've been at thirty thousand feet, talking about gray zone threats and China and the Philippines, um, to the topic question at issue. So, how can um, how? What's your proposal to use? uh national security law to positively impact our strategic competition in the gray zone so what does what does all this have to do with us and why sh- why, you know, why do we care about this uh this relationship and this treaty at all yeah
1: i argue that you have kind of a perfect situation here where the philippine government is asking for help and where we have a pre-existing treaty with them uh, to aid them as the U.S. is kind of turning, it's pivoting to Asia right now. So it it is kind of a win-win for both the Philippines and the U.S. And I'm arguing that one of the best ways that we can counter gray zone threats is these pre-existing uh, alliances that we've had, in, in some cases for decades, uh, coming back to right after uh, the end of the Second World War, because that is a very unique um, asset that the U.S. has. That's a strategic advantage that competitors like uh, China cannot match because they do not have those historic legal agreements. So I say that those treaties, like the one between the U.S. and the Philippines, that is core international law. And in in you know, one step further, that is also a fundamental part of American national security law. So I say that basically there's this mutual defense treaty, uh, the MDT, I'll just call it the treaty for now. There's this treaty between the US and the Philippines um, that's now 70 years old, actually will turn 71 in August of 2022, um, signed about six years after the Second World War um, as the US was uh, forming this new world order. Um, and it was making agreements with defeated nations, allies, even uh, neutral states. Uh, So it signed in 1951 during the Korean War when the U.S. was looking to make these very long-term agreements in the Pacific.
0: We've got this treaty, and we've had it so long, and it's with (laughs) the Philippines, and now we see these actions that China's taking that are... um, that seemed to be pretty obviously against the interests of our, uh, of our, you know, treaty partner in that region. What has kept the U.S. response so muted?
1: I think part of it goes to the, the element of ambiguity that we talked about in gray zone warfare. In part, the treaty between the Philippines and the U.S. was signed At a time when there wasn't such a thing as gray zone warfare, at least not as we know it uh, in the modern sense. And so it's really focused on conventional warfare, conventional attacks and responses. And I don't think that the parties could have adequately foreseen what we would be facing in 2022 in the South China Sea. So I think that's partly been, uh, to the US's credit, partly been Why we haven't necessarily stepped in so
0: quickly? What have American officials said about it?
1: Yeah, they've said effectively that we stand behind the uh, the mutual defense treaty. Um, We have been a steadfast ally of the Philippines. Uh, We would certainly come to their uh, to their aid in an armed attack, but uh, but it hasn't been triggered in that way, uh, at least not yet. Um, That hasn't been exactly what the Philippines. leaders have wanted to hear um, they have have not been pleased and, and have wanted greater assurances i think from the u.s uh, from the state department um, but at least to date that's kind of been the u.s response to, to the philippines
0: gotcha and so that brings us to your first main proposal Uh, which would work with this treaty to essentially reinvigorate our obligations under it, but then could definitely be applied more broadly um, to other agreements, to other situations, and to just a gray zone competition uh, all over the globe. So give us an idea of what this system you're proposing uh, would look like. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It kind of goes a little bit to the language of the Mutual Defense Treaty because that treaty um, has, a uh, Article 4 effectively says, if there's an armed attack in the Pacific um, on either the Philippines or the US, then both states are gonna treat that as a danger to the other states' peace and safety. So it's a little akin to Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty uh, that formed NATO. so like I said, it kind of that speaks more in terms of conventional warfare. So what I propose really is some sort of a, a response matrix, basically, that we need a system where we can classify threats that are below the conventional warfare level, um, that can talk about level of severity, um, spell out appropriate recourse, things of that nature, so that both the Philippines and the U.S., but also allies and adversaries, everyone's on the same page about... What exactly would be entailed? And I didn't really want to recreate the wheel. So I referred to some pre-existing systems like defense readiness condition levels, so DEFCON levels, or force protection conditions, so FPCON levels for terrorist activity, kind of used that idea um, and, and applied it to the gray Gray zone conditions, and I call them gray con levels. Um, And obviously, this is the earliest phases of of just an idea in a paper. So if something like this was implemented, it would have far greater detail and folks way above my pay grade would be involved, I'm sure.
0: But essentially, what you've come up with and what is actually an illustration in your paper is a table Much like you said, the DEFCON or the FIPCON table might look with rows and columns, each one corresponding to a different kind of or to a different gray con, as you call it. So give us, let me see, let me kind of pull one up here and get you to give us an example of what this might look like within the context of a... Of say China doing something in the South Pacific, so Graycon um, Graycon Four is the baseline readiness. Graycon One is maximum readiness, immediate response, and then it kind of goes on a scale between those. So, what would happen? Um, what sort of thing might happen to trigger say a Graycon Two uh, in your in your mind?
1: Yeah, in my mind, Graycon Two could be triggered if, for example, in the, uh, we, we mentioned fit Island back in 2019, where you have this amassing of uh, hundreds of vessels, whether they're Chinese Navy or Coast Guard, or even civilians being employed on behalf of the Chinese state. And they're starting to amass all around an island uh, even positioning in, in a way that, that could be construed as a, an attack position or threatening or preparation for an attack or an invasion. Um, I could see that easily raise, uh, rising to Grecon level two, if not Grecon level one. A Greycon level one, I think would be more like if they are actually implementing some sort of invasion or attack, something along those lines. Um, or, you know, right before they're about to implement something like that. That's what, in my mind, what what gray con level two would be, though, is you have um, basically a predictable or an imminent threat in the gray zone. Um, So you can see that. You can see a pursuit being given, for example, uh, not necessarily an act of of violence, per se, but just, you know, uh, a, a clear act of intimidation
0: or harassment. Gotcha. So maybe switching continents, something like amassing over a hundred thousand troops on the border of Ukraine, <laughs> um, claiming to be performing military exercises—that sort of thing. Absolutely, and
1: and that's kind of what I wanted in my paper was to be able to to up with ideas that could easily be used in the South China Sea but also be applicable in in any other area of the world where obviously fighting multi-front wars in in the Middle East still and and uh, keeping a very close eye on Ukraine as well.
0: Yeah and it sounds like what uh, to put it in my words one of the main benefits a system like this has is to fill in that gap that is currently gray. Right now, we have, we know what peace looks like, and then our treaty language defines war, armed attack, and then essentially that air between is the gray zone, and your, your proposal would color in that gray zone with varying shades of, I guess, white to red, or however you want to describe it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If we can take out some of the ambiguity of the gray zone, then I think we take the teeth out of those acts and threats within the gray zone. And we can more easily move acts into the peace column or the war column. And that helps everyone, I think.
0: So where does this fit with the treaty itself? Would you, um, What changes would you make to the treaty that we're talking about, the, the mutual defense treaty with the U.S. and the Philippines? Um, and how does this uh, interplay this gray con idea interplay with those treaty changes, if at all.
1: Yeah, I think it, what it will do is it's going to give the Philippines peace of mind. Um, for about five years or so now, um, they have been asking for sit downs to discuss what the treaty is going to look like in the future. If it needs to be revitalized, um, keep it as is or scrap it. Um, the defense and state, uh, state department ministers from the Philippines um, have met repeatedly with us to say, you know, we need revisions, we need reassurances in the treaty. I think something like a matrix like this, um, even if it's not included in an amendment to the treaty itself, could be included in you know an official policy statement about how the treaty will be construed in the future. It's going to give the Philippines a lot more peace of mind, it will be a line in the sand for China, frankly, as well, to know, okay, um, what we were doing prior was very much in the gray zone and and sort of not clear what we were actually doing, but if it brings, if it shines a light on some of those acts and forces them to declare, look, is this a a peaceful act or or is it an act of aggression that's an overture to war, then I think both parties are going to have a, a lot more faith in this in this treaty that's been around for 70 years now.
0: Yeah, as we kind of already talked about, when we have partners who can rely on the treaty and we have adversaries who know where we stand, uh, that positively impacts our national security and our ability to operate where and when we need to for our interests, I think is kind of the point of your your logical flow chart uh, that you put into your, uh, your paper there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so in addition to this sort of policy update with the treaty, you um, also talk about the, uh, the inquiry, inquiry and response requirement that would be part of a new uh, new system. What's that?
1: This is a forced um, kind of question and answer, as you say, inquiry and response um, set up with adversarial states to to directly address and eliminate any sort of ambiguity in gray zone threats. Um, So Philippine leaders um, would be able to, for example, issue demands through diplomatic channels. Um, So in the example of a boat of journalists being chased by, uh, by the Chinese Navy uh, back to the mainland, for example, that happened in, uh, in 2021, um, they would be able to say, look, um, China or any other state in the Indo-Pacific explain the reason and the purpose behind those actions or else those actions will be construed unambiguously as uh, an aggressive overture, so potentially leading to armed conflict. Because I wanted a paradigm where we could really undercut the ambiguity and the uncertainty of these kind of threats and to root that out. Um, but it also squarely addresses, I think, belligerence as well as one of those other factors for Gray Zone. Um, so I put the onus uh, on the gray zone actor to either one, you, you know, clearly admit a hostile act or two, deny it and, and provide some sort of evidence to back that up. Or three, fail to respond or fail to respond adequately, which could be tantamount to an admission of hostility. So I wanted to force reassurances from states, kind of put the onus on them that and have them say that no pre-war acts were intended or else frankly admit hostile acts and then face consequences.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. It's uh, interesting. So to, to- kind of tie the ideas all together let's walk through this hypothetical where um not hypothetically that boat full of journalists does get chased back to the mainland by chinese actors so then step one the philippine government reaches out to the chinese government through diplomatic channels to demand an answer um, right. for this action china does or does not give An answer. Let's say they either admit that it was a that was a hostile action, or uh, unconvincingly deny it, or they remain silent. Then the Philippines and the United States, uh, in theory, sort of consult the Graycon scale and and place the action somewhere in there and decide on an appropriate response at that level. Is that kind of how it would
1: work? Absolutely. And, and what I kind of foresee in that scenario is China would probably reply either denying the hostile acts, um, but not providing sufficient evidence for it, or completely failing to respond, which we would construe as an act of hostility. So, you know, these gray con levels are not for the entire South China Sea area, obviously. Therefore, it can be applied to specific geographic areas for specific timeframes. But you could see uh, for that passage, you know, for example, where the, the boat of journalists being chased, that that was Greycon level four. It's now being elevated to Greycon level three to, to signify higher than the normal readiness levels. And look, if it happens again, then we elevate it once again. And we have these new response triggers that go with Greycon level two, for example. So I think in a way it puts the onus back on China or any other uh, aggressor state, but it also gives them um, kind of clear expectations about, okay, we're starting at Greycon level four. We will elevate unless you can give us sufficient responses for what you're doing.
0: Right. Yeah. That, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, really cool idea. The um, just to put up, final point on this this very high this hypothetical um let's say all that happens and a determination is made between the US and Philippine government that yep we're going to treat this like it just got elevated from a graycon 4 to a graycon 3 that doesn't mean that we now are launching any kind of strikes against China it doesn't mean now a uh right. military force of you know some part of our navy is going to go actually uh, attack that that um, watercraft that was at fault what what does it mean for response options
1: yeah i try to lay that out in one of the columns that i have for basically consequence so at the baseline level there's very little if no recourse for graycon level three you're really talking about an increased intelligence watch, so um, increased monitoring and surveillance in, in a particular area. And it can build up easily to uh, military uh, presence if necessary, um, you know, se- security readiness all the way up to immediate response, whether that's military, diplomatic, and or economic uh, at the highest level of great level one, which would basically turn into uh, an armed response at that point.
0: Right. So at the top of this eventually has to be um, we've crossed into uh, something we're going to construe as a as an actual attack under the terms of the treaty and and respond accordingly. Exactly. Yep. And the clearer, the easier it is for everyone to see where that line is, then the idea is the smaller the gray zone ends up being and the less our competitors can enforce their will in that space absolutely this uh i was really intrigued by the the simplicity uh of the inquiry and response part of this and just wondered if you knew is this kind of idea being used uh, somewhere else that you know of
1: to be completely honest, I don't know. Um, I hadn't heard of it uh, being used anywhere else, though I wouldn't be surprised about it. Um, it just struck me as it, the main, I think the lethality of the gray zone, why it's so potent is just because it is the gray zone. So if you can attack the main reason that it's, unamb- that it's ambiguous or that you know receiving states can't determine how to respond to it, then then maybe you're on sure of footing. So... Um, my thought was simply, okay, address the uncertainty, um, come up with a way, and we do this in law all the time, right, uh, to say whether it's a burden of proof uh, in a court or something like that, where we say, okay, you, the party, are, have the burden of showing this, and if you don't do it to our satisfaction, then we're going to interpret it this way. So I thought, I mean, that's kind of a model that we use a hundred times in, in law school and in practice, we could probably apply it to something like this uh, with some success.
0: Yeah, it sounds like another, I mean, in a sense, it is due process. It is a notice right, right. and an opportunity to be heard. And we'll do with that, you know, we're going to even forecast to you what the possible consequences are for this. Um exactly. at, least, exactly. at least the range and the the red line. Exactly. Yeah,
1: it, it gives them fairness and notice.
0: Yeah, it bring, brings to mind a, just a law enforcement officer, you know, demanding hmm. an answer from a from a subject and you know an attempt situation you know and with the understanding that or not the understanding but the explicit command that hey if you don't give me an answer if you don't comply within you know a timely manner then you know here here are some possible consequences so
1: exactly exactly yeah yeah exactly it's it's pretty much the same setup um it, it, it gives the uh aggressor state uh, the chance to respond and and uh, clear expectations and what they do with that thereafter is 100 on them
0: yeah and uh, yeah and it also right has the advantage of presenting one side as being or you know letting the i guess the international community judge the actions and responses a little better um (laughs) knowing what transpired being able to show what actually transpired leading up to a possible response to a uh, some sort of action So right you are forthcoming in your article that there are a number of possible counterarguments uh, or roadblocks to implementing a system that like the one you propose uh, at Wanted to start with this idea of flexibility. So, what are what are what's the I guess the argument there about leaving room for flexibility?
1: Yeah, the argument is that the the mutual defense treaty is drafted; it is ambiguous uh, on gray zone issues, but that gives the parties flexibility, and that and so ambiguity in the treaty language is not always a bad thing. Um, it can leave the parties in a lurch, but uh, it, it gives some leeway if commitments aren't clearly triggered, um, so it can be beneficial, and it's even somewhat common uh, as a feature in, in other defense treaties that the U.S. has. So clearly the Philippines is not uh, the happiest they've been with the treaty uh, because they're not sure when it will be triggered or when the U.S. will necessarily intervene on their behalf. but you know, it also gives the U.S. uh, some wiggle room to deny if treaty obligations have been triggered uh, to our advantage, potentially. So uh, it does benefit the parties in this case, perhaps more the U.S. in this case, but it can also be, I guess, the counter to that kind of argument is that it can appear self-interested, right, that the the U.S. is wanting to be hands-off in its approach, and that's Oftentimes, not the best way to, to do business with a longtime ally.
0: Right. It's I, I kind of read your counter argument to be that at least in this instance, at this time, the the benefits of possibly losing some flexibility outweigh that cost.
1: Correct. I think uh, in terms of a long term relationship with the Philippines and, and also just acknowledging that the Philippines is a key player in the South China Sea. So we have longtime allies like South Korea and Japan. Philippines is not as close to us, but it it has an, an equally, if not more important geographical position in the South China Sea. We don't want to lose them or put any separation between us and them. So I, I think biting the bullet and adding a little more detail to the treaty, even if it means us having to roll up our sleeves, um, is going to benefit us long term in the the Indo-Pacific.
0: Yeah, uh, that made sense to me. Um, What about this idea about, I guess, the cost kind of, well, this this would end up costing us a lot in defense of coming to the rescue of the Philippines, uh, either all the time or in a big way that we can or shouldn't um expend the resources for
1: yeah i mean with the example that we had of of the swarming of the island back in 2019 um, you can imagine if the gray con levels are elevated and we end up uh you know sending our navy um or air force to uh to that island or that region in the south china sea that could be very expensive right i mean the American taxpayers are correct. To question: um, What sort of commitments could actually be triggered in this? Um, I don't deny that. I mean, I we all know uh, that the Department of Defense uh, benefits uh, greatly from the taxpayers. That um, our budget is is large, but what I argue is the the price for a guarantee for peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Um, is, is far worth it, uh, that e- even if um, some sort of response uh, based on this treaty uh, would be triggered, that that would still be worth it if it means a reassurance to the Philippines and other allies in that region um, that we will come to the rescue and that we will uh, check, whether it's China or any other adversary, that we will um, uh, respond accordingly.
0: And this, um, the next one is just, I guess, kind of a pragmatic concern about, okay, politically, is it realistic to uh, get the Senate's of the respective parties to this treaty to even ratify any updates along the lines of what you're proposing?
1: Yeah, and I I just raised the issue that this would be an amendment to a treaty. So I I would foresee significant negotiations and revisions, and that any amendment would have to be ratified by the Senate's U.S. and the Philippines. And that's an open question. And I I won't opine on on the political branch and whether they could or would pass some sort of an amendment. Um, But I also say that may be a reality. On the other hand, uh, the parties could still benefit from a formal public statement. Um, So even coming out through the Department of Defense, the Department of State, to clarify American policy uh, for interpreting the the mutual defense treaty in in the 21st century uh, would be a strong step. And uh, I say that, you know, it would not have as much staying power or authority as a treaty revision, but it would still be a great plan B with many of the same benefits um, as pushing through a a treaty amendment.
0: For sure, at least, yeah, at very least, as long as the the same parties were in power and in place that I, that made those statements.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that could be a good alternative,
0: right? And then, I, I, finally, the the I guess the last one you really address is the risk that we're going to hitch our wagon to the Philippines, and they're going to do something recklessly provocative um, and trigger. Uh, conflict with China that we're now going to be dragged into uh, that's over something minor that we might not otherwise have. Yeah,
1: and I and, and I agree, and it, that is a, certainly a concern um, uh, for the parties. Um, I, you know, some will liken it to a, a threat that, look, we may be dragged into another decades-long conflict, uh, like in Iraq or Afghanistan. There will be Uh, politicians and and people in the public that that would be fearful for something like that. Um, I argue, of course, that the alternative is worse, um, that we have a clear mandate uh, from the White House uh, to address gray zone threats. And in the the concrete, uh, that means defending the Philippines if necessary, because we made this agreement 70 years ago. Um, So, we, we need to sort of put, in, put our money where our mouth is here. And I think what we can do to sort of address this concern is there will be obviously numerous diplomatic and defense talks um, about treaties, uh, treaty revisions uh, to clarify the terms, to clarify the gray con levels, for example, and, and what sort of responses would be triggered. Um, of course, you know america cannot be a guarantor of everything that the philippines does in the south china sea so there will be limits but we can we can talk about that uh, and and that way we can sort of address uh, any concerns but also at the same time uh, push through revisions that will address what china's doing in the south china sea
0: yeah thanks you make a compelling case for this and just to to recap now what what we're kind of talking about is this uh, gray zone threat, specifically these uh, these actions by China in the South China Sea against the Philippines that are uh, that are that, I guess they're good for China and bad for the Philippines. Uh, basic, you know, in in simplest terms, and how to combat those. You propose a, a few different measures. One of those being uh, a system a gray con system that would reduce some of the ambiguity and address the belligerence of these actions and give us and the Philippines and even China, a a clear vision of where we stand when they do things like that. And that's a part of our relationship with the Philippines because we're in this 70 odd year old treaty. So you propose updating, revitalizing that treaty to make it triggered possibly by things less than out-and-out armed conflict uh, with systems like the Graycon, and also this uh, idea of a forced mandatory inquiry and response so that China's given an opportunity to explain the action uh, and possibly um, what's the word I'm looking for, de-escalate things before we and our allies uh, respond in kind or respond as we deem appropriate to mitigate that threat. Um, And we've talked a little bit about the costs and the benefits and the counter arguments to that system. So um, Captain Ormsby, uh, thanks. Like I said, I think you make a very persuasive case. What parting thoughts can you leave us with, uh, with regards to to this paper and these proposals?
1: Well, I wanted to start with the premise that as much as we've all been following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, I still think China will remain the main focus for us um, in terms of defense and foreign affairs. Uh, So that's why I started with my article with the the quote that the United States is an Indo-Pacific power. Uh, Again, quoting the White House, Um, As much as we should keep our eye on Russia, I think that the main challenge will be China for now. But I also wanted to come up with hopefully some ideas that are reproducible and scalable because we can't ignore Russia or the Middle East at this time either. So uh, I was hoping that, you know, if there are any kernels that can be taken out of this paper that they could be applied to other situations, other adversaries, um, whether the maritime or whether we're talking about on the border between Russia and Ukraine, um, that they could be reproduced and hopefully used in, in conflicts large and small. Um, so that's what I, I hope to do here while you know, not forgetting some of our allies because again the, the White House has, has footstomped repeatedly that they're turning to Asia, that they're wanting to focus uh, and give a warm handshake. Um, to allies that have been with us since the end of the war. Uh, We don't wanna neglect them. We want to, to give them reassurances that the US is here to defend our interests, but also their interests abroad.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.